Amen. Thank you, Tony. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. So thankful to be here with you today. I've had an extremely long Thursday to now. Um, Tony wasn't lying, and I'm not doing it to prove anything to you because I don't feel like I have to justify anything. But we, we really worked hard over Thursday and Friday uh, with you in mind, with our church in mind, with the dedication to our principles and our passions and our pursuits in mind. And I want you to know, um, I'm reminded constantly, but I'm reminded especially around the time of the leadership retreat, um, and I exclude myself from this, and hopefully you will include me in this, but I'll exclude myself from this. The leaders of this church are superior, impeccable, uh, godly, worthy of honor, uh, worthy of being paid attention to. And uh, like I said, I exclude myself from that. I hope that my character includes me in that in your mind. Um, but I am, I just, I'm constantly reminded, but I often forget, so I know that you do, the necessity of Drew and Blake and Stephen. I have seen it through his life, but I was introduced to it in a, on a different level this weekend of the wisdom and um, thoughtfulness of Tony. And it's certain in my mind that we are making an amazing and fruitful decision for the life of our church in installing Tony as an elder of Vintage Church. And uh, the only regret I have is that I trust in the sovereignty of the Lord, but the only regret I have is that we didn't do it sooner. Today we'll be in 2 Peter. We're going to finish out chapter 1 of 2 Peter. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21, 19 through 21, and we are going to look at the last part of this two-part sermon on the true word of God, the true word of God. Pray with me this morning. Lord, how can a young man keep his way straight? By living it according to your word. Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. I will cherish all of your precepts. I will keep your commands. Father God, help us to understand that as believers, there is one path to righteousness, and that is through Jesus Christ. And the light along that way is through his infallible, perfect, reliable, sufficient word. Lord, help us, like the psalmist, to cherish your word. To abandon all talk that is not, a, uh, all talk that is advice that is not, that does not revolve around your precepts. to never give counsel or never give any teaching that is not ingrained and enriched and engrossed in your word. Help us to be so radical about your book 
that it radically changes our lives and it radically impacts how the world and how other Christians view us. Lord, might we be met in your word with truth, with understanding, with the ability to grasp it, apply it, but also with humility. That we may know that it is only through the calling of God and election, the work of the Son on the earth, and the power of the Spirit that we are able to understand, read, understand, and apply the word to our lives. Your word is true. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray and ask these things in the precious and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we began our look into the true word of God. The true word of God. This week and last week we were looking at some important truths as it pertains to how God has spoken to us. Now we discussed how Peter was specifically addressing the false teachers uh, in 2 Peter 3. And he's later going to address them more specifically. But 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21 is the sort of introduction to his apologetic, his defense of the word against the false teachers in 2 Peter really 2, the idea in 2, and really 2 Peter 3. These false teachers, if you remember, had denied the second coming of Christ. Um, While the denial of the second coming is a false teaching, um, and, and we should definitely approve I disapprove of that, as Peter did. Peter is really teaching something else uh, in 2 Peter 1 that is also vastly important. That it's not just a problem that these false teachers were denying the, uh, that were denying the return of Christ, but they were also denying the teaching of the apostles. And to deny that the apostles were led along by the Holy Spirit, to deny that the word of God was written by holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit, to deny the testimony of Peter, James, and John, and the others that they can be trusted, it not only denies specific prophecies of the Lord, but it also denies that the word of God can be trusted at all. The reason, friends, that we have such a strict view and such a stringent pursuit of the word of God and each truth, each and every truth, is not because one truth is more important than the other necessarily, or it's not that we really need to defend the truth of God, uh, each truth of God. It is because if one truth of the Bible can be refuted, which by the way, they can't. If one truth, one absolute truth of the Bible can be refuted, then the Bible itself is no good for life and godliness as a whole. It might provide us a roadmap. It might provide us some spiritual truths. It might provide us some good things for living, but it, not, it no longer can be seen as the word of God if one truth is eroded. So Peter, yes, was trying to preach the return of Christ as an important tenet, as a vastly important tenet of 
biblical Orthodox Christianity. But he was also in doing so trying to tell the people of God in the first century church in Asia Minor that the Bible itself needs to be, not needs to be, but is to be understood as God's word and defended or else all is lost. If you think about that, what is contained in the Bible? The truth about Jesus. The truth about his death, burial, and resurrection. The truth about the miraculous things he performed. The truth about the prophecies he fulfilled. Friends, I want to tell you, you must, as a Christian, take a hard and fast stance on the infallibility, the inerrance, the sufficiency, the reliability of the word of God or you leave room for everything to erode. This is why, um, for me, from creation to revelation, I just look at the Bible as I see it. I don't try to read too much in it, and I don't try to read too much outside of it. And if you call me naive, if you call me dumb, if you call the things that we read impossible, I almost take it as a compliment. Because if you can explain to me all of the things that God has spoken and done, that's not a God worthy of my worship. A God worthy of my worship is unexplainable at times, is incomprehensible. So I just take God at his word. And I'm telling you, friends, I'm telling you, and this might be a soapbox. Some people might call it a side sermon. You lose nothing by believing in a six-day literal creation with a seventh-day resting. You lose nothing by taking that belief. But I do think you lose something if you believe that God created the world in any other way. If you believe that God is the theist in charge of theistic evolution, if you believe that God created, that God, to, to God a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years, so he might have created the world in a thousand, a six thousand years instead of one day or six days. You lose nothing by reading the word of God and just saying, yep, that's what it says, that's how I'm going to take it. I will say it again. I can't tell you how important it is that we take a strict and orthodox view of the Bible. That we see the scriptures as inerrant, infallible, complete, and sufficient. The word of God. Because when we deny the reliability, the completeness, the sufficiency, and the truth of one word of God, it puts into question every other word. After all, friends, it was Satan's first and most effective tactic. Did God say? His first tactic and most effective tactic was to go to Eve and say, Did God say? It would be naive of us to think that if the tactic worked so well to curse all of mankind, all of humanity, that God would just, I mean, that Satan would just stop using that as a tactic. 
Has God really said that his word is true? Has God really said that Jesus is the only way? Has God really said that we must pay for sin or someone must pay for sin? And without the rejection of Christ is an eternity in hell. Has God really said that he has anything more for us than just his great love, that he's not also a God of justice? Has God really said to be sexually chased for my spouse? Has God really said that I should be physically healthy? Has God really said that I should adore and follow and read his word? Has God really said that I should pray without ceasing? Did he really mean that my prayer life, my life should be a life of prayer in the way that Paul implies? And on and on and on and on. The, the largest and strongest tactic of the enemy is to get you to doubt the word of God. Has God really said? As much as Peter is denying the lie that Jesus won't return, he is also defending the truthfulness of the whole counsel of God. And we must not only assert that the Bible is the word of God, friends, we must love it, we must read it, we must know it, and we must live it. Last week we saw that Peter wants his readers to know that his message came from God, that it was not his own, that he was a reliable witness and that he should be trusted. Let's take a little further look this week into the witness of Peter's testimony and the reliability of God's true word. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as, a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We live in what seems like a, a dark and ever-darkening time, my friends. Social Christianity, which sort of staved off the darkness for a little bit, at least in the America and Western culture, social Christianity has disappeared. And not only a, a non-adherence to Christianity, but a hostility towards Christianity is at an all-time high. The world has gotten better in some ways, we have advances in medicine and technology. We can travel further and easier than we've ever been able to. We can communicate with each other in a millisecond. There are many ways that the world has gotten better. But ultimately, friends, we live longer lives that are less fulfilled and unhealthy. We can see the whole world, but there's nothing new to see. And somehow the fact that it's available at a click of a button or even a quick travel has cause it to lose some of its luster. With all the advancement in life and in the world, it still seems pretty dark and ever darkening. Don't we need a lamp to light the way? Don't we need something to shine on the path that we may not stumble on our way towards Christ? So how can a young man keep his way straight?
by living it according to your word. How can we see on the dark path down life's journey? He keeps his way straight by living it according to your word. And your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And the only way we are able to live with so much passion and so much fervor for God is if we believe that the word of God is God speaking to us and that it has been kept for us in a perfect manner by a holy God, infinitely powerful, infinitely able to do so. That while Peter wrote first and second Peter, the Father through the Spirit was the one that gave Peter the words. We believe that God has, or we should believe that God has perfectly preserved the most precious revelation throughout history and that he has protected it and he will keep it and it's worthy of following until the day that he returns. We have to believe this because it is only the word of God that affects the life that is indwelled by the spirit of God that changes that life. So what else does Peter say about the true word of God? I want to give you three additional truths from last week uh, to add on to last week. The first and second coming, the first truth is this, the first and second coming of Jesus gives meaning to the words of prophecy. Look at the beginning of verse 19. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. We discussed this last week how Peter directly how Peter is directly addressing false teachers who believe that there was no return of Christ. We learned that on the mount of transfiguration it was confirmed in the mind of Peter, James and John and therefore they shared it to us that Jesus would return. That while Jesus would leave the earth, he would come again and that we would be met with his glory and presence. But these false teachers had come along and they had tried to discredit Peter's account of what happened and really how Peter was was viewing the words of prophecies of the prophets themselves. But Peter here says, the mount of transfiguration and really the life, the glory and presence of Jesus in general confirmed what we had already been taught through the prophets. That's what it means to have a more uh, uh, the word of God more are the words of the prophets the prophetic word more fully confirmed the prophetic word here is specifically those words of the prophets that the Jewish people had been studying had been attentive to in order to find the Messiah in order to see what he had looked like what he would look like how he would come the prophetic word then is more fully confirmed by the appearing and the presence and the glory of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies that were written over a few thousand years before him. The life of Jesus obviously more fully confirmed what the prophets had said when he confirms them by living them. Now, I don't normally read illustrations to you, but I want to read this to you so you can understand the full effect of Jesus fulfilling prophecies, okay? Peter Stoner was the chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. He was passionate about biblical prophecies. 
with 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. Eight prophecies. Now remember, it is believed that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. The conclusion that the research of these eight prophecies, the conclusion of the research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy those eight prophecies was one to the tenth, uh, one tenth to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Okay. Now that might it's not very meaningful for me because I'm not a mathematics genius. So I will I will try to. He gives an illustration to help you try to explain that. One in ten to the seventeenth power. So the science speaks and it describes it like this. Let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one in 10 tickets, one in 10 tickets, and you place all of the tickets in a hat and you thoroughly stir them, and then you ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Now suppose that we take 10 to the 17th, silver dollars, and you lay them on the face of Texas, they would cover the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the two foot of mass across the land mass of Texas, stir them thoroughly, and then put the blindfolded man on top of those silver dollars and ask him to find the marked silver dollar, that is the same probability that any one of these eight prophecies would be fulfilled. Not only did Jesus get eight right, he got them all right. The prob- the, the, one of the uh, parameters of a good teacher is that you get every prophecy that you make or every prophecy that you are claiming to confirm right. If Jesus missed one, we can no longer call him good. We can no longer call him God. But he confirmed over 300 so I guess that would be silver dollars stacked on the entire landmass of the globe, stirred up, and then try to find it probably, maybe more than that. There's probably not a number that we could come up with to quantify that. The life of Jesus then, including what we saw, what Peter, James, and John witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, confirms and more fully confirms what the prophet said about him. It doesn't mean makes it more truthful. It means brings it to life, gives it life. What the prophet said was always true. When Jesus came, he confirmed it. So the life of Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration, everything he did, it it compiled more and more evidence of the reliability of God's word. It was more robust and complete because of Jesus. So the second thing I want you to see is this. We saw that the first and second coming of Jesus solidifies the words of the prophets. The second thing is this. The words of the prophets were confirmed by God. 
Not only were the words of the prophets confirmed by the life of Jesus and the things he did, but the words of the prophets were confirmed by God. Look at the second part of verse 19. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture come from, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 of 2 Peter tells us to pay heed to the words of verse 19. In verse 20, Peter is arguing against the opponents of the return of Christ and the way that the apostles understood the prophecies. Interestingly, he is not defending his own view here. He's not saying, my view is right. What he is actually saying is, your view is wrong. I, I didn't come up with my view. But I can promise you that your view came from you. And so no prophecy has ever been confirmed, more fully confirmed, by your words. No prophecy has ever fully been confirmed by a twisting of what was said to make your interpretation valid. So underneath the words of the prophet were confirmed by God, you need to see that it is not someone's own interpretation. He says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's interpretation. In 2 Peter 3, they are called false teachers, interestingly. They're not called false prophets. The error in 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Peter 3 is not that they were making false prophecies. It was that they were discerning what the prophets said wrongly. So they were false teachers and not false prophets. What Peter is actually saying is, is that what you believe about what has already been said is wrong in a way that you are making your assertions about what you, an agenda you want to push, a truth you want people, or a, a false truth that you want people to believe. In 2 Peter 2, Peter says, these men taught feigned words. In 2 Peter 3, they twisted the scripture to make them mean something else and denied the coming of Christ. Peter is saying, this is your own interpretation, and you don't have the authority or the backing to have an interpretation. Friends, can I assure you of something? If you come to a conclusion that is different than what the Bible says, you need to remind yourself a few, of a few things. Number one, I am not an apostle. I am not an apostle. Number two, I was not tasked to write the Bible. And number three, any interpretation that I can then come up with is my own and not God's. Peter is saying, listen, 
I know that it's hard to believe because I know that you feel like you're following God and I know that you're doing the right thing by reading and trying to understand the prophets. And I know this might be hard to hear coming from me because it's sort of me confirming what God has confirmed in me. But I have the authority because of my position with Christ as an apostle to tell you what the prophecies actually say. John has the authority. James has the authority. Paul received the authority. You do not. Peter, James, and John Luke, Matthew, Mark, they were commissioned by God to write the Bible under the direction of the Holy Spirit. You were not. I was not. So therefore, any assertion I make outside of God, I mean outside of the Bible, is my own interpretation. And Peter is saying there is not a single word that it's man's own interpretation that has ever been confirmed. Peter also says it's not someone's own motivation. He says no prophecy has ever been produced by what? The will of man. We could form a prophecy team today, friends. We could do nothing for the rest of our lives but read scripture, pray, and beg God to give us a new word for the rest of our days. We could have the most dedicated team to prophecy it would never, uh, and would never hear a fresh word from the Lord. Because prophecy and understanding prophecy doesn't come from my will or my desire to prophesy or understand prophecy. It does not come from the will of man. The Spirit gave the word. He gave the prophecy. And only he can cause us to prophesy or understand. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-15 says, The natural person does not accept the things of, God, things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of Christ as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Every false teacher claims to be led by the Spirit. But there is only one way to be certain that he is led by the Spirit. Whether a false teacher or whether a person in this pew or whether a person at this pulpit, there is only one way to discern, and that is their treatment of the Word of God. If the Word of God to them is preeminent over their own showing, over their own interpretation, and over their own Word of God, you better, you better cup your ears... You better sit at the front of your seat. You better write notes and you better pay attention and follow what they say. If it is not, you, you just simply do this. If the, if, if the man's view of God is not uh, determined and confirmed by his treatment of the scriptures... Walk away. Walk away. Don't say, well, there might be some profitable things along this way. 
There might be some things that I can hold on to. He does, have you heard this part of it before? Have you heard this part of what he says? Friends, I want to take it to another level. If my brother here is trying to give me advice on how to live my life, if he's trying to help me with a problem that I have, and he starts spouting off some self-help, if he starts spouting off some psychological babble, and there is nothing found in the word of God and what he says to me, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to do the same. Because no interpretation of truth has ever come by the will of man, but only by the will of God. It's really, to under, it's really easy to understand too, friends, how to properly understand and speak the truth of scriptures. You must first be redeemed, saved by Jesus, and secondly, want what he wants and pursue what he has said. It's also really easy to become a false teacher when you start picking apart what he has said in order to fulfill your agenda. Men throughout history have been cherry-picking scripture to meet their own selfish will, their own selfish desires. We can pretty much take any scriptures out of context and prove almost anything that we want to prove. As a matter of fact, this is the only way that false teachers can prove their heretical doctrines by picking and choosing the text they want to follow. But isolated text apart from context becomes pretext. Pretext is when you look for a reason to justify your actions that's not the real reason. The scriptures are not meant to be interpreted by powerful people. They're not meant to be only studied by the pastors and elder team or within the church walls alone. The scriptures were written for fishermen, for tax collectors, and for tent builders. The scriptures were written by fishermen, tax collectors, and tent builders. So that if a man delights in the law, if he delights in the precepts of God, so faithfully, so abundantly, our God gives him a lamp to light his way. It's not done by his own interpretation. It's not done by someone's own motivation. But men were carried along by God. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, prophecy and interpretation always comes from God. But we, we would be naive to not look at man's role in the scriptures. There is a communion of the effort of God and man in the writing of scriptures. You've never heard me say those words before. Let me explain. It would, be, it would be naive to think that we don't see Peter's personality in how he wrote the text or his perspective 
or even his writing style. Peter was not a passive participant in the writing of First and Second Peter. We actually get to see an image of what Jesus was like. We get to see, I mean, what Peter was like. We get to see Peter's own interpretation on the, of the Mount of Transfiguration. We get to see James and, and uh, what James taught and what John taught of the Mount of Transfiguration, how they saw it. But we also know that these are not Peter's words. These are the words of God. The scripture says men spoke from God. They were carried along. The wording here is like a ship that has caught wind in its sail. The ship moves under the power of the wind. As we are looking at the ship from afar, the ship looks mighty and majestic and powerful. But without wind, it's just a floating house. It's the power of the wind that makes the ship mighty and majestic. Interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit is called the wind. Peter said negatively in verse 20 that prophecy does not come from human will. And positively in verse 21, he says, prophecy of Scripture comes from God. I think it should be noted that in verse 20 he says no prophecy of scripture. This was not just oral prophecy that Peter was speaking of. He was speaking of the written word. It is safe to conclude then that if Peter understood his apostleship on the same authority as the prophetic word, that Peter is also discussing the reliability and the trustworthiness of the words of the apostles. So when we hear words like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be well-equipped for every good work. When we hear those words, we know that it's talking about the book of law. We know that it's talking about the prophecies. We know that it's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. But because of the confirmation of the authorities of the apostles, we also know that Paul in 2 Timothy is talking about the words written and canon canonized in the New Testament texts of Scripture. That not only the law and the prophets were carried along by God and his own words, but so too was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. So too was Peter and James, and so too was Paul. It goes back to our belief, that our, our belief that is absolutely necessary in the life of a Christian that the God who left us with the Spirit also left us with his instruction, also left us with his word, and that he, being the sovereign God of the universe, has perfectly preserved that word, and that we have that. See, when you don't believe that about the word of God, you say two things about God, that he is inattentive to his people, and that he is not as powerful as you might claim he is. But because he is attentive to his people and because he is all-powerful, we must believe that the word of God has been preserved for us and we know where it can be found. If we believe the word of God to that degree, if we believe in the prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy Peter mentions some great benefits, and I want to leave you with those today. We'll have to go back to 19, to verse 19 to find these. 
He says in verse 19, they lead us well. These prophetic words that are more fully confirmed, they lead us well. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to. You will do well to pay attention. So not only does it benefit us to pay attention, but it also, and not only, not only is it good to pay attention but to, but it gives us a well-being beyond that. Psalm 119.43 starts like this, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimony before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Psalm 119, starting in 52, where I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Psalm 119, starting in verse 59, when I think of my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I will praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Friends, can I tell you that the way we keep your path straight is to walk the way we walk in abundant peace, the way we continually acknowledge God with our lives is to learn and live his word. Otherwise, you can't keep a straight path. You cannot keep a straight path with personal, even persistent, even strong effort. You cannot keep a straight path through will or desire, but objectively through a consistent and constant dedication to the word of God. You will do well because of the word. Peter goes on to say, after you will do well because of the word, <coughs> he says the precepts, the prophetic word that is more confirmed is a lamp. They are a lamp. Look at verse 19 again. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. While in many ways the word is darkening, the world is darkening till the return of Christ, Christians are not left without a lamp to light the way. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Proverbs 6, my son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always and tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will comfort you. When you awake, when you are awake, they will talk to you. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
The world is on a search for direction and meaning. Christians are not. The world is on a search for purpose and fulfillment. Christians are not. The world is on a search for peace and hope. Christians are not. At every moment of lostness, the word of God is a light for direction. At every moment without purpose, the word of God shines light and purpose and reason in this earth. At every moment without hope and peace, the gospel is the light of peace and hope to all who put their faith and trust in it. One more truth to consider. How long should we pay attention to these words? They will see us through until the day of Christ. They will see us through until the day of Christ. Peter goes on to say, which to, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Friends, I want to tell you, the quicker you look at this life as a marathon and not a sprint, the more quickly you understand the work and the time and the effort and the diligence and the longevity with which we should spend Loving and living God's word. When is the expiration date on that love and living of God's word? When Jesus returns. When the morning star rises. And listen, that's just a practical thing. Why when Jesus returns? Prophecy looks ahead. The word of God looks ahead. It gives us a message for now, for sure, but it looks ahead. Looks ahead to what? It looks ahead when the true word has finally fulfilled everything and we were with him forever. You don't need hope if you're with the giver of hope. You don't need the idea of perseverance if you're with the one who has completed all things. You don't need instruction on love if you're with the definition of love. You don't need to know what peace looks like if all outside forces that could cause a disturbance in peace have been eliminated. But until then, but until then, his word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This book of law shall not depart from my mouth, but I will meditate on it day and night. How can a young man keep his way straight? By living it according to your word. His word is true. We believe. And if you're struggling with that, pray that the God of the word would help you with your unbelief. Pray with me. Father God, you are holy and righteous. You are perfect in all of your ways. 
It is a delight to be able to know you, to be able to love you, to be able to pursue you. And yet we take it for granted so often. So often we look for every solution, every hope, every way to try to find peace and security and tranquility in this world. And yet the God of peace, the fulfiller of hope, the man of perfect love, is waiting for us to just open the words that he has so eloquently given us. Your word is true, Lord. We believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus for his sake. Amen.